and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come on by uh, thedispatch.com, check out our wares, do that thing. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, I got an earworm. I was just talking about this on Twitter. Um, every time I see the word monopsony, which is uh, an economic term for where there's essentially only uh, one buyer or or there's only there's one buyer that's uh, so powerful that it controls the market. Um, so instead of you know monopoly is where there's one seller, um, and a monopsony is essentially where there's one buyer. Anyway, an economist used the word monopsony in a tweet, and every single time I see the word monopsony, I start thinking of that mana mana song from the Muppets, do 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 mana mana, and I just. And the word monopsony gets stuck in my head, playing it out over and over again. And I apologize in advance because I know the same won't happen to all of you. And some of you, um, because you live normal lives, um, don't run into the word monopsony all that often. Although someone on Twitter said that they'd have the same problem whenever I use the word phenomena um, on this podcast. So I'm, I'm sorry about that as well. But I, I'm just trying to share the pain, spread it around a little bit. Um, you know, I mean, we're constantly told about how equity is more important than equality. Um, well, that should, that should go for, for pain, not just for benefits. So monomena. Anyway, uh, where to go? It's, um, it's early in the morning. I'm doing this truly alone because we had some technical for technical reasons and manpower reasons. Um, uh, the, uh, Ryan had to go be the producer for uh, the Friday Dispatch pod and Caleb's off to some wedding in Mexico or something. So I'm just doing this by myself, which in some ways I have to say I prefer. I mean, I it's nice to check in with Guy and Ryan or whatever, and I, I do like the drive time things, even though we haven't really mastered the format, but I like, um, um, I feel so self-conscious when I know that there's somebody sitting there taking notes on what I say and how I say it and whatever, and it just, do 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 manamana. Sorry. Anyway, so um, where to begin? Um, I guess you know I'll, I'll start on this Millie thing. Um, I ma- I made this point on the Wednesday Dispatch podcast um, that you know I as I've discussed on here, I'm trying not to like let Twitter's schedule dictate how I form how and when I form my opinions. And the Millie story is a really good example of it. Like I was shocked when the Woodward story first broke. Um, and at first I was like, Oh, that sounds really bad. Um, and it, it may well be very bad, but I've like changed my mind on this thing like three or four different times now. Um, because, um, well, I'll get to the reasons why in a second, but my point, my first point is just simply that I'm glad I didn't like join the herd and say, treason resign yada 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 um based upon the initial report because then you're i mean you can always change you know you know you can always tweet later look i've learned new things i've changed my mind but you still you've participated in a mob for a while and um psychologically it's it's much more difficult to pull out of a mob than it is to sort of not join it in the first place even virtual ones 
So, you know, what do I think about it? Well, the, the place to start is like, I don't, and again, I don't want to repeat all the Friday, uh, all the Wednesday dispatch podcast stuff, but I don't trust Bob Woodward. I, I don't think he's a fabulous. I don't think he makes things up. There was a long time. I will admit where I thought that, um, deep throat, you know, this essential character in, uh, in the Watergate reporting might've been some sort of, you know, amalgam or, you know, uh, you know, conflation of a bunch of different sources. Turns out I was wrong about that. Um, uh, but you know, the whole deep throat thing, what was his name? Um, let me look it up real quick while we're talking. Um, um, uh, Mark Felt, right? So, like, if you ever saw all the president's men, you know, Mark Felt, you know, is is played by this gravelly voiced, was it Hal Holbrook? I think. Um, you know, he was basically the the inspiration for Smoking Man in the X Files. You know, this trench coat wearing guy who could only tell you so much about what was going on because things were so risky. Um, meeting in parking lots and blah, 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 blah. But you could tell that he was on the right side of things, sort of like one of these people who understood reverse time travel and tenet. All they could really share with you was their hand gestures. And, um, and it turns out that Mark Felt was a jackass who was pissed off that he was passed over for a promotion and he was just getting payback um and that and that he was actually um more watergatey than watergate was because he was like a hoover guy and I, I might be remembering some of those details slightly off but that was that was the, my sense of it when i remember reading up on it back in the day when he was finally revealed um regardless he his motivations were not this i must save democracy stuff it was typical washington you know, screw you stuff. And, um, and Woodward is, is very good at that stuff where he lets people screw their enemies, um, in exchange for giving access. And if you don't give access, then you're his enemy and he makes you the bad guy in his stories. Um, the only place where I've ever really thought that he may have just absolutely invented something was the whole, visiting bill casey in his on his deathbed in the hospital thing there i'm still very very skeptical of that you can google that but that's too deep in the weeds right now um regardless uh the point is that woodward gets well i, I think he generally does get facts right but within a broader context um lots of facts can be twisted painted cast ben folded mutilated whatever do 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 um any way you want while still being truthful and so there was a call you know um and millie talked to his chinese counterpart and all oh and that's the other factor right it's not just that woodward can spin the facts um the people talking to him spin the facts you know, I, I think it was George Stephanopoulos in his his biography, um, uh, or memoir or whatever, uh, talked about how when he first got a call from Bob Woodward, his first reaction was something like, "Oh crap, what do I do?" And then his second reaction was, "I've arrived." And so there are a whole bunch of people who just 
you know, use Woodward as much as he's using them to get their, you know, uh, heroic tales of, um, of genius and policy mastery out to the world. And, you know, Colin Powell did that. I mean, the, I think it was the first Gulf War book that Woodward did. It was basically as told to by Colin Powell. And, um, there are lots of people who eagerly talk with Woodward, um, so that they can get the, the a beneficial spin to their stuff. So one of the reasons why I, I, I think that this thing is, was blown out of proportion is that I suspect, and I think Eric Erickson was making this point, was making the point that, you know, Millie was puffing himself up more than was appropriate. And that's bad. And we'll talk about, we can talk about that in a second. Um, but if you follow what Jennifer Griffin has been reporting about what these calls were actually about and what happened, um, they weren't, you know, this deep state treason garbage that's everybody's throwing out there. It sounds more like it was sort of run of the mill bureaucratic, um, you know, back channel stuff, which happens and should happen. There's nothing sinister in and of itself about back channel stuff. It's only sinister what you what people may may or may not want to do with back channel stuff. But back, you know, like having military to military relations has been a part of our foreign policy, you know, and military policy stature or for stature stance for a really long time. And um, and it should be, you know, reassuring your counterparts, oh, we're not going to war when we're not going to war is like a worthwhile thing and a useful thing. And I think one of the things I find funny about all of this, he's you know. He's, you know, Millie stabbed Trump in the back. Millie undermined Trump. Um, um, you know, Millie's a, a traitor stuff is even if you read the Woodward account with total credulity and you think it's a hundred percent accurate as reported, which amazingly people who, you know, dismissed Woodward's reporting about Trump as even when there were tapes of Trump saying these things as out of context and fake news, but now all of a sudden Woodward's gospel, regardless, even if you subscribe to their reading of what Millie did, he didn't actually commit treason. I mean, I don't think he committed treason on the merits or on the facts or any of that kind of stuff. But even if you go by the sort of the fevered, you know, Charlie Kirk kind of approach to this kind of thing, he didn't commit treason. He suggested to a Chinese general that should the president decide to you know, declare war or attack China in the, la in the last, what, 14 days of his presidency, 13 days of his presidency, I guess, um, I'll give you a heads up and it won't happen or something along those lines. Now, if Trump had actually gone to war with China, you could say, well, you know, like, uh, you know, Millie and Millie had followed through on that promise. Um, we're, which is there's no evidence that he necessarily would have. Um, then you can maybe talk about treason, but treason actually has a definition and like, you know, giving aid and comfort to the enemy is not what Millie did. And we weren't at war. And, um, um, and what I love about this idea is that like somehow people are talking about how, you know, the, the upshot of some of this, of some of this nonsense is that if Trump had decided on January 7th, right, because we're talking about a call that happened in the wake of the January 6th thing. So on January 7th or 8th or 9th, whenever this call took place, 
that in the last week of his presidency, having just fomented this riot and all this kind of stuff, if Trump had decided to take the first steps towards a thermonuclear war or just some other kind of war with the Chinese, the outrageous part of this whole scenario would be if Millie tipped off the Chinese. Not as not that this lame duck deranged guy um, who insisted that the election was stolen was launching a war with a week left in office. That would be, you know, well, that's the civilian control of the military. That's the way it's supposed to work. That that scenario doesn't seem to bother anybody or give anybody pause. But the fact that like Millie may not be all rah-rah for it um, is like one of the greatest outrages. I mean, I, I saw one guy saying this would be one of the big, this should be one of the biggest stories of the last 50 years. I, I just don't, I don't see it. Um, that said, I, I think there's a problem. So I got a little bit of a argument with, um, Sarah Isger about this on Wednesday. Um, she's very much opposed and I completely understand, you know, generally not wanting the military to be in the mix of all this stuff, even though a lot of people don't, I'm not saying Sarah, but like a lot of people don't realize that the chairman of the joint chiefs of command command, um, is not actually, to my knowledge, in the chain of command. Um, it's an advisory role. Um, he doesn't like direct the military in any formal way. He's like, you know, it's, it's like this big sinecure job when you've risen through the ranks of, of, of the military. But like, if there's actual nuclear war or an order to, to launch missiles, the order doesn't go through um, the chairman of the joint chiefs, it goes through the department of the, the secretary of defense and then to whatever specific, you know, uh, officers are, are in that line, but it's not the chairman of the joint chiefs. So if, if these reports are accurate, that Millie inserted himself into that, that's bad. I mean, and there I completely agree with Sarah. That's really bad. Um, but I have two caveats about that. Um, one, my disagreement with Sarah was about, you know, Sarah's like, you have two choices. You can, uh, you can go public and say what you need to say, or you can resign, but doing this sort of behind the scenes skullduggery is bad. And I don't know that I agree with that. It let's assume again, if we're going to believe the, the, the Woodward reporting, you got to believe all of it. You can't pick and choose, you know, which version of this, you know, which, which things you're going to credit what you're not on this. So if the Woodward reporting is accurate, then Millie really did believe that, that Trump was uh, having a mental breakdown of some kind, was not sane, was not reliable. And I think she's, I think, oh, and Sarah, that's right. Sarah also mentioned he could, you know, pursue, help pursue the 25th amendment option, which I think is a legitimate thing to try and do. If you, you know, but again, you got a week left, week and a half left of the presidency. Um, but, um, regardless, the, you know, she said, or he could resign. And, and I think resignation, if you actually think those are the stakes, if you think that this guy is capable of getting into a war with another major nuclear power, just to cling to power after being, um, defeated at the polls, uh, I think maybe you should stick around. Right. Um, and, 
and I think that that would be the better move. I mean, sometimes I like to think of these things. What if you made this as a as an accurate movie, where you're distilling it down to the most important points, and the Millie character just decided he's going to give a press conference, resign, and go home, rather than actually prevent the president from doing X or Y or whatever. I think it's it's a it's a it's a moral judgment call. The thing is, now that that crisis. You know, we can debate whether it was in fact a crisis or not. And, you know, but Millie thought it was. Now that that crisis is over, I think there's a much better argument that he should resign now simply because uh, I, I was about to say through no fault of his own, but perhaps through considerable fault of his own, but also thanks to how President Trump corrupted a lot of people um, and not just his friends, but also his enemies. Um, I could see how um, he's just too much of a political figure now. And it let's just say for the sake of argument, it's entirely unfair um, to Millie that people have this doubt now about whether or not um, he's giving his best military advice and whether or not he's sort of gone political. That's too bad. But like he owes it to the country and to the cause and to the, the, the military not to be the issue. And I think, you know, there's a case to be made that, you know, take, taking one for the company and resigning now just to remove that image, um, has some merit to it, you know, or at least he could offer to resign. I would, you know, I would say he could write a letter to, to Biden and say for, you know, I, I stand by what I did. I believe the reports are inaccurate, um, blah, 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 blah. But the president deserves a chairman of the Joint Chiefs who um, does, is not part of the story. And so therefore, I offer my resignation. And then Biden could play the, you know, the, you know, the real reluctant, reluctant acceptance card. Or he could say, I, I refuse your resignation. Either one. And that would be fine. But I think it would send the right signal for Millie to do something like that. Um, but this just sort of gets to, to the larger point, which just drives me a little batty is the way in which people tend to see the situation that Millie was in or Pence was in or, um, and not just in the woodwork book, but just, you know, in general, these people who make these bad decisions or good decisions, depending on not whether you're like a Trump apologist or a Trump critic or somewhere in the middle. I mean, People have different views about how Pence behaved and how everybody behaved. That's fine. But what drives me crazy is that everybody works from this, uh, not everybody, Trump's defenders work from this assumption that um, it is just ludicrous to think that, that Trump did anything wrong, that he violated any norms, that he created untenable situations for people like Millie that he so bent and twisted the, the, the customs and the traditions and the rules of the presidency to the point where like people who are not supposed to be involved in politics feel like they have to make political decisions and, and that people like Pence who are involved in politics, but you know, recognize like most of us do that there are some functions that when you're in government actually have nothing to do with politics, like certifying the election. And um, being put in this untenable position of having to either betray, betray is 
Trump's and Trumpy world's word, um, the president by doing the right thing or being forced to do a very, very wrong thing. And the, it's, it's, it's the, the scoring and and you get the similar stuff from the left about people thinking it's just so obvious how everybody should have behaved around Trump. Um, and anybody who worked with him must be evil, like the devil. And, um, it's just so much more complicated than that and all of these kinds of things. But the one, you know, the one person who is sort of, um, on the right, you know, denied any culpability or agency in this stuff is Trump himself. And, um, you know, so this gets me, I guess, to like this thing, I, I the Wednesday G file, which is not out from behind the, um, subscriber wall, which I liked quite a bit. It's weird how I increasingly like the Wednesday G files more than the Friday G files. Um, it may be because I feel like I am just writing for, um, the folks who really, you know, want to read it, even though like a lot of the comments I get on the, you know, and for the subscriber only Wednesday G file are still quite critical at times. Um, I know there's something a little more liberating about writing for an audience that doesn't feel like the thing is an imposition, um, or isn't looking for some reason to confirm whatever their latest theory about why I write what I write is right or wrong or whatever. But anyway, um, wrote about rules and um some of this stuff is familiar so i won't i won't dwell too long on it but you know i'm a big fan of rules and what we you know like what uh jonathan roush and and i i used to write about this quite a lot hidden law um uh which is basically customs norms traditions uh rules of the road i mean like there are there are it's sort of like, you know, like the, the amount of money in circulation in America that is actually like paper bills. I, I don't know. It's, it's like 8% or 12%. It's some tiny fraction, right? The amount of r- rules in a given society that are actually like written down laws is probably a similar proportion. The only reason I'm a little reluctant to say that is we have an enormous number of dumb regulations and laws on the books um, that, you know, are, are, are almost literally unquantifiable, but still you kind of get the point. I mean, when someone yells dibs, um, and sits in, you know, the comfy chair, that's a, that's hidden law. That's a rule. That's, that's a custom. And when you're playing, you know, a game of, you know, uh, football in the park with your friends in high school or whatever, and somebody uh, on your other, on the other, and somebody says something was or like if you're playing basketball, it's easier. You know, if someone says that was a foul, or that was out of bounds, or whatever, um, and it's to the advantage of your team. If someone from the other team agrees with you, that kind of settles it, right? Um, it's there are these just like these weird rules. I don't know how many of them have to do with like our our wiring or our programming or our or you know our sort of natural sense of morality. I think a lot of them do, but probably not all of them do. Um, but there are just these general assumptions about reciprocity, about, uh, uh, you know, good manners that, that are, um, essentially human universals. And there's this fascinating list of things that are common in every single culture around the world 
um, God, I can't remember the guy's name. I wrote about it in Suicide of the West. It'll come to me. Um, but anyway, uh, um, but one of the places where we get rules, um, customs, norms, more advanced, more complicated ones, is through trial and error. You know, I talk about cooking a lot, where you know, any any recipe that you cook, you have, unless you're a food historian or a cultural anthropologist, you probably can't even guess at a tiny fraction of the amount of trial and error that went into uh, your recipe for duck a l'orange or whatever. You know, first of all, at some point in time, someone had to figure out that you could eat ducks and then had to figure out how you could catch ducks. And then someone had to figure out how you raise ducks and how you feed ducks and then how you slaughter ducks. And, um, and then I had to figure out what an orange was and, you know, and at every st- and someone before all that, someone had to figure out that if you cook food, it tastes, it can taste better and it's actually safer and it has a longer shelf life. And, um, and that there are some foods that you can't eat unless you cook them. And someone had to figure that out by cooking a lot of foods that didn't get better when you cook them. And along the way, someone probably ate a lot of poison berries and you can just go on and on and on of all of the trial and error that gets you to like one recipe. And the same thing applies for a million, million, million other things. Um, we get, you know, customs and norms and traditions by trying out bad ideas and having the bad ideas, sort of like when Calvin Coolidge says, um, if you do nothing and 10 problem, if 10 problems are rolling towards you and you do nothing, nine will roll into a ditch before they reach you. Um, that kind of sifting, that kind of like trial and error um, occurs over millennia to figure out um, what a best practice is. You know, that's that's why most societies ultimately settled on, um, you know, uh, monogamous uh, uh, two-person marriage. Uh, you know, because it turns out, I mean, there are still a handful of places, you know, that still have polygamy or polygyny, um, which is where it's one woman and many husbands. Um, but uh, for the most part, societies realize that uh, polygamous marriage is bad for society. It's particularly bad for, for men. Um, um, and it's not great for women either, I should be clear. But like, you know, it's sort of like, you know, how I always talk about how if you, um, you know, people who believe in reincarnation always think that they were some princess or duchess or baron or or knight or something like that or king um and they never think that they were the um assistant piss boy um working in the you know the stables or whatever um similarly like uh like when you talk to men about how you know how great having like eight wives would be and all that kind of stuff you're they are always assuming that they were the kind of rich you know uh, successful and powerful people that could afford eight wives when in reality what you got were um, a handful of, of men who were, because they were rich, were very desirable and could pay real dowries. So it made the parents of these women, uh, you know, interested and they could scoop up all of the, um, available young women. And then that left very few, if any, uh, women for the young men. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why, I mean, it's so grotesque, but that's one of the reasons why the Taliban is obsessed with essentially uh, buying or, or kidnapping 
young girls and giving them to their soldiers because these guys come from societies where young men, young poor young men can't get wives. And so um, uh, this is like the spoils of war for them is the ability to get a wife. Um, and, you know, and I'm sorry, I, I, I even hate using the word wife when you're talking about some 14 or 12 year old girl given to um, an illiterate soldier. Um, you know, to me, it's a sex slave, um, but that's just me. Um, anyway, where was I on this? Um, rules, right? So anyway, rules come along down the pike, um, because people try all sorts of other things and they figure out what best practices are. Doesn't mean that every rule that survives is good. Sometimes rules have to be changed. Um, anyway, so I wrote about a good bit about that and how it applies to things like genocide and, 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 and a million other things. And, but one of the things I didn't talk about, I did talk about, um, was, um, rule utilitarianism or at least the utilitarianism of rules there's a whole school of philosophy called rule utilitarianism which i'm not going to get deep into um but um it, it it i didn't realize it when i was writing the thing but the thing that had put it in my head was uh mike munger was on the econ talk podcast a few months ago or a few weeks ago i don't know i listened to it a few weeks ago um and he was talking about rule rule utilitarianism um the example i used in in the g file was about how like uh, let's just say for the sake of argument that uh using red for stop and green for go is a totally arbitrary thing it's actually not there's an interesting history to it it goes back to like train signals and and how our eyes actually see red better than they see green better than they see green. There are all sorts of different reasons for it, but let's just say for the sake of argument, you know, that the dude who was in charge of doing this declared, you know, asked his daughter and she said, red's my favorite color. And she said, okay, well, we'll make red stop. Um, and you can say that's arbitrary. You can say it's, you know, capricious. You can say there's no good reason for it. Um, which is something people do, something people say all the time about rules in institutions that they don't like. Um, we can talk about Chesterton's fence again, if you like. Um, and you can concede the point. You can concede the point and say, sure, absolutely. Um, it's totally uh, um, arbitrary, um, but you still need the rule, right? If you left it up to everybody, to every jurisdiction to come up with their own color for stop and own color for go a lot of people would die right um you need markets depend to a large degree on a bunch of simple rules that everybody understands from the beginning and then plan around accordingly um you know some of them are things like private property if you know if you understand from the beginning that what belongs to you know that that the stuff that is in someone's house and in someone's car and the car itself and the clothes they have are theirs, um, and belong to them, or at least you should presume they, they, they do, um, for all intents and purposes, maybe they're borrowing them. I mean, Al, Sar Al Sharpton claimed on his IRS forms that he rented his suits. Um, but the point is, is that society doesn't work unless everybody buys into certain assumptions about what the rules are. Um, and anyway, so it reminded me 
I felt bad for not mentioning Munger in the G in the G file. Um, so I, I found the little the transcript from uh, the episode of Econ Talk where he talked about um, uh, the point uh, the, about rule utilitarianism. Um, and one of the things he talks about is a shelling point named after this economist guy, um, where the he says, you know, you know that habit you have when you're with your family at a carnival or whatever. And you say, let's pick a point where we'll meet if any of us get lost. Well, the, the place where you pick doesn't really matter, but it matters that everybody knows what it is and then can plan accordingly. And he talks about that a little, a, a little bit, but I like this other thing that he does, did. Um, um, he says, he's talking about David Schmidt's example of a desert town with a traffic stop. And he says, and Ross Roberts says, explain that. And Munger says, okay, briefly, I drive into town and a cop pulls me over and says, you know, says, you know what you did wrong? And I say, no, not really. There was no, there were no like traffic markers or anything. And the other car stopped. So I went on and he said, well, here in desert town at every intersection, we all pull over and we talk to each other about who has the most legitimate reason to be in a hurry. And then Whoever gets priority gets to go through the intersection first. And then he stares at me and I say, you're obviously joking. I mean, I don't know what the joke is, but you're kidding. And the cop says, look, I was going to let you off with a warning until you said that. And then Munger says, so is that a good system? That's a social system. That's a social justice system. Because sometimes I'm at a stoplight and I'm in a hurry. And Russ, I know you're going the other way and you're not in a hurry. You're 10 minutes early because you're that damn kind of guy. And so you should stop and let me go over. It's unjust, except that if we had a system where we all had to stop at every intersection, it would take even the most in a hurry person 10 more minutes than it would to wait two minutes in an unjust way at the stoplight. So rural utilitarianism would say that even the least well off are going to be better off in a system that's predictable, even though it's unjust. It is absolutely unjust. Of course it is. But the cost of achieving, achieving case-by-case justice through discretion and rent-seeking will dwarf the benefits that you imagine that you can provide. And, um, and Russ rightly says that this is very much a Douglas North kind of point of view, and he's right. So in case you didn't follow all that, you know, the social justice arguments basically say you know we have to weigh each person's intersectionality and figure out what the system owes them and each person deserves some special consideration depending upon their level of victimology and all that kind of thing and um and the the rural utilitarian the free market person you know there are lots of people who who agree with me on this on the left and the right i mean this is not a right-wing argument this is an argument about how to you know the basic operating software for a civilization says yeah yeah look i understand there are going to be exceptions where like the guy who's driving his wife um to the hospital um who's pregnant you know uh, and is about to deliver a baby that guy gets to break the rules but for the most part we're going to have a system that 
will work on net better for everybody, including the people who have a really good reason to run a stoplight or, 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 um, you know, pass the person in front of them, in front of them illegally. Um, we're going to have a system that regulates all of this that will actually, at the end of the day, result in the people in a hurry getting to where they need to be earlier than they would if it was just total chaos. You know, this is a point I always try to make to my daughter about why parking lots at like supermarkets and big shopping malls are the most dangerous place to drive. It's because the obvious rules have been suspended. There are no traffic lights. It's all of this weird common courtesy stuff. No, you go, no, you go, that kind of thing. And that's how you get fender benders. I mean, fortunately, no one's doing car, you know, uh, parking lot stuff at, at 65 miles an hour, but you get the point. It's that when you don't have clear rules that everybody understands in advance, um, is, and when you start leaving things to individual discretion, it's where just contingency and, and misunderstanding take over very, very, very quickly. And, um, and anyway, the reason why I think this is important is that we have now one of the weirdest, dumbest, most dysfunctional consensuses, consensi, agreements, you know, whatever, um, in my lifetime in terms of how, in terms of how the elite argument about norms and customs and rules works. And it's basically, um, um, you know, it's, 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 it's the invert. It used to be, you know, there used to be this joke about, you know, not joke, but this sort of standard debate kind of point of free speech for me, not for thee, right? Which is in other words, I get to say the things that I want to say, but your speech is dangerous. Your speech needs to be regulated, all that kind of stuff. It's, 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 it's like that, except it's no norms for me, all the norms for thee, right? Um, we had four years of a bunch of um, apologists for Trump saying, you know, making fun of people like me going, ooh, ooh, my principles and orange man bad and all this kind of stuff um, for four years saying Trump should have, you know, that the rules no longer apply. We are in open field now and Trump should be able to do whatever he wants and he's rejecting the dead consensus and yada, yada, yada. And he was elected to be a disruptor and blah, 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 blah. And, um, he shouldn't be constrained by any of these, you know, you know, norms and principles and all of this kind of stuff. I mean, and I, I still see this argument coming up all over the place. And, and then, um, uh, Biden comes in and almost all of those people now are invoking the norms and principles and democratic norms, constitutional norms, presidential norms stuff, but not because they actually believe in them simply because they want to say that the Democrats are being hypocritical for not living up to these supposed norms that they believed in so passionately when Trump was in office. And they have a good point because the Democrats are not living up to those kinds of principles. They are not living up to, they're not being consistent in the application of this stuff. When, when Trump questioned that there were constitutional restraints on his power, you know, the entire elite media, you know, heed to their fainting couch, couches and, you know, demanded to be fanned. Um, they were so, you know, aghast at, at the, you know, the assaults on norms. And, um, 
And now, you know, Biden defies, you know, openly admits that he's, he's not following the Constitution when he did the eviction moratorium. Um, he clearly has not thought through what the constitutional questions are on this uh, vaccine mandate stuff. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I can do this all day, and I did at great length in, in the G file. And, and this is a point that, you know, I made constantly for four years not just criticizing the, the Trumpy crowd, but also criticizing Democrats because Democrats were, and liberals were very hypocritical about this stuff um, when Trump was in office too because they would, you know, basically what would happen is Trump would violate some norm or custom or constitutional principle or presidential, you know, rule. You know, and some of these things are understandably fuzzy, but people recognize them when they see it. And he behaves like, you know, a jackass. And that gave Democrats all sorts of permission to break other norms and rules in customs because they felt like um, they needed to keep this guy in check. And so, I mean, like one of the earliest ones is remember when uh, his Trump's conversation with the Russian foreign minister was leaked? That was bad. I mean, that was really bad. And. I kind of understood at the time why someone would leak that stuff because some of the stuff that he said was bad, or at least that's how I remember it. Um, but those kinds of conversations are supposed to be secret. You know, it's sort of like, or like the whole Vinman thing. You know, the stuff that Trump said to the Ukrainian president was really, really bad and violated presidential norms. And then Vinman, in response, violated presidential norms and, and, and talked about it. And um, we can argue about whether there are wrongs or rights in, you know, who, you know, whether two wrongs make a right or how many wrongs are in there and all that kind of stuff. And it's something kind of like a case by case basis, but time and again, the Democrats violated all sorts of norms because they thought they were justified that because Trump violated norms and Trump's, you know, team violated norms. And then Trump's team, you know, would see these norm violations say, ha, you guys are hypocrites. You claim to care about this stuff, but you don't. And then they would, that would give them more permission to violate norms more and more. And now we're simply at a place where people think to the extent they believe in any of these norms, it's basically, it's just as constraints on their opponents, but not on themselves because everybody has invincible confidence that they are completely right and their opponents are completely wrong. And this is not to get too dramatic, but this is, you know, I, I, every now and then I have this new appreciation for the phrase, the center will not hold, you know, from the poem. Uh, was it slouching towards Bethlehem? Um, because this is the, this, this is what happened. You know, when the center, I'm not talking about centrism or moderation or any of that kind of stuff. The center is where the keystone is. It's the thing that holds the whole arch together. It's where the rules rule. And when the consensus is, is that the, the rules no longer apply to anybody and you're a sucker if you buy into the rules. Um, then, you know, it's, it, then all contests become simply um, adjudications of who has the power or who can get away with um, whatever they want to do or say. And, you know, that's not great, Bob. All right, so let's talk a little bit about AOC um, and the dress thing. Um, so, excuse me while I chew ice, I apologize. Um, 
where to do this I, uh, or how to do this. Let's start by saying it is tragic that Tom Wolf is not, is not with us for this. Um, this. His radical chic stuff is so perfect way to, and Bonfire, the vanity stuff is so perfect, to, a prism to understand some of this, this kind of thing. And since I mentioned Tom Wolf, I will say he was a huge fan of liberal fascism, uh, not the phenomenon, the book. Um, and, uh, um, he was kind enough. I didn't know him at all, but he was kind enough to blurb the book. Um, um, just from looking at the manuscript and, uh, my friend Scott Emmergut sent me a picture when they did an interview with him at his house. He had a dog-eared copy of the book on his desk and had nice words for it, you know, even 10 years after the book came out. But that's just a self-aggrandizing thing and has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Um, so I guess a different way to think about it is, is the Hunger Games. Um, I liked the Hunger Games, at least the first Hunger Games movie. Um, my daughter loved the books, loved the movies, was really into all of it. So even though I never read the books, I feel like I have because she explains to me every time we watch one of the movies where the movie gets the book wrong and what happened in the book and blah, 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 blah. And one of the things I, um, one of these small things that I really liked about the movie, which I guess is accurate from the book, is that as you got closer and closer to the centers of power, basically, you know, the capital district, um, those with wealth and power would dress and adorn themselves ever more flamboyantly and complicatedly with crazy hairdos. And, 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 you know, later we found out even like weird surgical augmentations and, um, and wild dresses. And remember there's the whole girl on fire thing because, um, Jennifer Lawrence, you know, starts, you know, has that dress that is on fire. And, um, anyway, one of the things I liked about that is that I think that is a much more accurate way of, you know, describing, I don't know if Hunger Games counts as science fiction, but it's a dystopian, futuristic dystopian literature kind of thing called sci-fi for short. Um, you know, there was a long time in American or I guess just in sci-fi, where uh, there was this weird assumption that the future, in the future, we would be technologically, you know, rich and, you know, um, but we'd also be profoundly homogenized. I, I'll see if I can find it. Um, there's this famous clip about, you know, what life would be like in the year 2000 um, from some movie and um and the scene has uh you know the the air is just full of planes people are flying biplanes they each have their own biplane and this guy in a unitard climbs out on the wing of his plane and starts flirting with the girl in her plane which is next to him and she's like how's it he's like how's it going xj1493 and She's like, oh, YLP270, you're such a flirt or whatever. And she's wearing the exact same kind of clothing too. And everyone else is wearing the exact same kind of, kind of clothing. And I just think about this the other day is that, you know, you know a lot, in a lot of ways, um, science fiction in America, I mean, uh, Jules Verne gets all the credit and all that kind of stuff and should, that's fine, whatever. But um, utopian fiction 
uh, not dystopian, utopian fiction really starts with this guy, Edward Bellamy, um, who uh, I actually wrote a really long essay, maybe it was two-parter, for The Dispatch right around when we started. We'll put it in the show notes about Edward Bellamy, who's kind of forgotten now, but was one of the most influential figures in American culture of the last century. Um, that's really not an exaggeration. Um, uh, he wrote this book called Looking Backwards, which was like an inspiration for the entire progressive movement um, in the 1890s. And it was a huge bestseller. One of the biggest, like after like Uncle Tom's Cabin in the Bible, it's one of the biggest bestsellers in American history. And um, the whole deceit of it, it was sort of like a Rip Van Winkle story where this guy sleeps or is in a coma or whatever for a really long time. And he's woken up in the year 2000, um, you know, sort of like the old Conan thing in the year 2000. Anyway. Um, and everything's great. Everything's been fixed. Bellamy is the guy who invented the term credit card and this concept of credit cards. It's not exact. They don't work exactly the way our credit cards do, but it was interesting anyway. And everybody works as if they are a part of the same industrial you know this is this is one of the reasons why industrial armies became very very popular in the progressive era um um and everyone works is basically drafted into an occupation and there's everything's kind of militarized and one of my favorite things about it is the great symbol of the waywardness of 19th century liberal democratic capitalism was the umbrella where if you had money or whatever, you had your own individual umbrella that only took care of yourself. It was so selfish to have your own umbrella. And in the future, whenever it rains, vast canopies will just unfold like in front of a grocery store um, over city streets and everybody will share in the dryness that comes from social justice and harmony and living together and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, the reason I'm bringing this up is because it's in my head. And, you know, at this point, you're still with me. Why not? Um, but uh, Bellamy, Bellamy's science fiction, um, which really does like do a lot to start the whole field of sort of futuristic, you know, the future is going to get better kind of stuff, um, which I think Star Trek in some ways is an heir to. Um, there was this assumption because back then the whole idea of a moral equivalent of war was very, very popular. It was right around the time William James gave that speech and coined that term. There was this, and it was around the time, you know, like, like boy Scouts and Salvation Army and all, you know, and all of these ideas that if we could just unify, like we do when we're at war, we can solve all our, all of our problems and we can all be in it together. And it was in many ways, the dawn of the cult of unity in American culture you know, this idea that if we all hold hands and, and work our best and try our hardest, we can make this the best yearbook ever applied to all of political philosophy. And, um, and so I think that was one of the reasons why there was this homogenization of, of the people in, in utopian science fiction. And then because of, you know, the Nazis and the communists and the 1930s and the 1940s and the Holocaust and the red scare and, um, and you know, the Chinese stuff and all that kind of thing. Um, 
and of course, 1984 and Orwell, um, dystopian science fiction now thought that the future was going to be homogenized and, um, and that everybody was going to be forced into wearing the same clothes, you know, basically like concentration camp pajamas or labor camp work clothes, that kind of thing, or those gray flannel things from the, the 1984 movies. And, um, and that coincided later with the, the rise of like a lot of the sort of cultural criticism, man in the gray flannel suit and the worries about conformity and all that kind of thing. And, um, anyway, back to the hunger games, which I promise will lead back to AOC. At least I think it will. Um, in the hunger games. Yeah. It's an authoritarian regime. Yeah. It's evil and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. They're, you know, they're making teenagers fight to the death. Um, and, uh, so not great, not a great society. Right. But in the outer districts, everyone basically dresses the same because everybody's poor and everybody is basically working in a labor camp. But as you get into the center of things, you know, you get people, you know, turning into human peacocks and wearing, you know, the most ridiculous stuff and having crazy makeup and, and all that because they first of all are trying to stand out and second of all they um it's it's veblen consumption right it is conspicuous consumption you are trying to show how rich you are um uh it's sort of like in the in in dune which i've been rereading you know the harkonnens the bad guys they had the same sort of approach to uh conspicuous consumption by being really wasteful with water on the desert planet arrakis and um and anyway, I, I think it's really interesting when you think about like how the, you think about the way the aristocracies of Europe would behave. Hunger Games gets it better than a lot of other things because, you know, in the, the aristocracies of Europe, and I am sure this is true. I mean, I, I'm pretty, I, I am sure it's true in like the aristocracies of ancient Rome, but I'm sure it's also true in the aristocracies of China and Japan and all that kind of stuff. The richer you got, the more you could afford to wear, you know, crazy stuff from very far away. And the more you wanted to show off how rich you were. Um, and it got to the point in some parts of Europe where they had sumptuary laws where in order to really prove who was top dog, um, certain colors were banned from being worn except by the king or close members of his family. And, um, and Anyway, so that's what came into my mind a little bit when we were, when I started seeing all those videos out of the Met Gala thing, which I have to admit is a subject I could care less about on the merits. Like, um, I, you know, the sum total, I grew up in New York City, uh, not far from the Met. I would say if you took out the events in the movie Oceans 8 from my knowledge base prior to this week, um, um, it would have reduced my total, you know, hard drive space about the Met Gala by like 75%. I mean, I just, I don't care about fashion. I don't care about that stuff. Um, you know, I had to, I had to recheck who Nicki Minaj was the other night for reasons you know, I, I don't know if we need to get into. And, um, anyway, so, but AOC wears this dress that says tax the rich on it. And, 
it's grandiose. And then there was another woman, I don't know who she was, but she had this long gown with it saying, you know, women's rights or whatever. And then there was some rich girl, famous rich girl from a rich family who has rich people problems wearing um, a, a dress or top that says something like peg the patriarchy. Um, I'll leave it to you to look up what that's a reference to in general, but it's, it's sort of like F the patriarchy. Um, and, uh, and by the way, on this patriarchy stuff, if the patriarchy were half, not half, a thousandth as powerful and as sinister and as authoritarian um, and controlling um, as people like that claim, you would not be allowed to criticize the patriarchy. You know, I mean, this is the, the, the bravery, the performative bravery on the cheap that we get in American politics is so amazing where people who aren't being censored make enormous amounts of money by claiming that they're being censored and people who have massive media pro profiles, um, are, are bragging about how courageous they are for speaking up and um, you know, left-wingers throughout the Bush presidency, my God, the people who were talking as if Bush were Hitler, when if Bush were Hitler, they wouldn't be talking. Um, and this is it, the, the bravery on the cheap that we get in our culture is just so amazing to me. Um, and look, I'm not saying there aren't things that, I'm not saying that cancel culture isn't a thing, that, that's a, the, the, the censorship thing you know, which again really isn't government censorship, which is real censorship, but I'm not saying that there isn't, we don't live in a censorious society and there are certain places where you can't say things and all that kind of stuff. But, um, the people bragging about their courage, speaking out against X or Y do it in front of audiences that reward them for it. Not, you know, they don't risk anything in front of the audiences. It's like, you know, George Clooney talking, you know, denouncing racism at the Oscars. What, 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 where, what's the courage there? You know, what price is he paying for that? Um, you know, and, you know, or like someone saying something on PC at CPAC and then having to t wait a minute for the applause to die down. Like, you know, what, what, where was the courage in, you know, in, in confirm and performing exactly the way the audiences want? Um, you know, and this is, this is one of my huge problems with a lot of the things going on on the right these days is, you know, people are talking about how, how vitally important it is to fight and speak the truth. But if you don't speak the truth that, you know, your audience wants you to speak, then you're a traitor. You know, it's like, again, norms for, for thee, but not for me. We want, conviction and truth telling, but only for the truths that we like. Anyway, um, uh, where was I? Oh yeah. So anyway, the, 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 the Met Gala thing, I love this thing for so many different reasons. First of all, it kind of confirms some of my, uh, stuff I've been talking about a lot lately about, you know, elite overproduction and the new class and the politics of resentment and whatnot, which we're not going to go back into. Um, but it's, it's also, you know, like I, I think that what AOC did was bad and it's bad for a bunch of different reasons, but not necessarily the reasons a lot of people are screaming about. 
first of all, I do think it was, it was simply put, it was trolling. It was high level trolling. It was very sophisticated trolling. It was very clever trolling and it was hugely successful trolling. But again, I don't want members of Congress doing any of this kind of crap, this kind of performative, you know, with an eye towards social media and fan service kind of crap rather than like doing their jobs. Um, I would love to see a 10 year moratorium on members of Congress being on TV or on social media. And, you know, again, I don't think it's constitutional. It's not going to happen, but I think it would make the country a better place. Um, uh, I also think what she do was wrong because, you know, so the slogan that she has on her dress tax the rich is false. I mean, it just false on its face. It's, we tax the rich. We tax the rich quite a bit. We have actually a very progressive tax system in this country. Um, you know, the top, what, uh, 10% pay um, almost, what is it? Almost The largest share of, the, of income taxes are paid by the top 10% and the top 50% pay like 98% of income taxes. Um, we've got, I mean, I've written a zillion columns of this. If I have the numbers wrong, I apologize, but I'm just talking about directionally. Um, you could confiscate the wealth of every single billionaire in America entirely, and it wouldn't pay for the stuff that AOC wants to do. And that, you know, just this week, AOC came out with another video talking about how it's, it's really silly and simplistic and a little ignorant for people to talk to her about her being rich. She's not, when she says tax the rich, she doesn't mean people in her income bracket, right? She's not talking about lawyers and doctors <laughs> as if lawyers and doctors in this country don't qualify as rich. I mean, some don't, obviously, but a lot do. Um, I saw somewhere the other day, according to BLS data, that the mean CEO in this country makes uh, less than the mean doctor, um, which I think is interesting. Um, and I'm, I'm not begrudging doctors. I'm just saying, like, you don't get to pay for a tenth of what AOC and Bernie Sanders and these people want simply by heavily taxing the rich, especially the way she's now defining rich. You got to start taxing the middle class and heavily to come close to the social welfare state that these people want. Um, and to say tax the rich makes it sound like we are not doing that right now. So it's propaganda. Um, but it's also just, I mean, there is a hypocrisy thing there where she is, she wants to play in the, um, in the end of the pool with the rich and glamorous people which are entirely a byproduct of a rich society and, um, uh, and the lifestyle that is perpetuated by the Met Gala crowd is precisely the kind of lifestyle that people like Bernie Sanders and other socialists and Marxists and whatnot have been talking about as the, the you know, almost the signature indictment of capitalist culture forever. And she understands that to the extent that she needs some sort of um, cover. So she has she paints tax the rich on her dress. Oh, it's so clever! It looks like a taffeta Chick Fil A bag where the cows misspelled "eat more chicken." Great, good for you. But at the same time, um, she's selling tax the rich swag on her website and making money off of it. And, um, there's this wonderful, you know, it's sort of like, you know, this point I make about 
you know, how, which I get a lot from David Brooks about how one of the great things about American culture is it bourgeoisifies people. Um, you know, you, you know, 40 years ago, having uh, flamboyantly gay, promiscuous characters on TV was incredibly rebellious and transgressive. And now having uh, gay characters like in Modern Family arguing about the safest car seat or what's the best preschool to get their kid into um, is, is not transgressive. It's, it's evidence that uh, the bourgeoisification of the whole issue, which is, by my lights, progress. I mean, that doesn't bother me. Um, but, uh, you know, here's this woman talking about, you know, socialism and tax the rich and, you know, oh, and she talks about how she was breaking down barriers by being at the Met. It's just all fan service. It, uh, my friend Luke Thompson, you know, he calls it a uh, master's degree radicalism. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And, and Megan McArdle, I think had it right where she said, you know, the great thing about, I mean, she thinks she didn't, she doesn't think AOC did anything wrong, at least according to what I saw on Twitter. I disagree with her. I think what AOC is part of the problem, not part of the solution. But, um, you know, but Megan, I think is right when she says the whole thing reveals so much about what, a who AOC's real base is. And it's not hardworking, um, struggling people of color in Queens or Brooklyn or whatever or Queens, I guess. Um, it's, the associate producers of various television shows um, and, 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 and editors of various fashion magazines, that's her base. You know, it's the people who really care about her, um, her, her, her lipstick, you know, color or whatever. Um, and, and I'm sure she is full of rationalizations about how we're getting to, you know, this is, this is the means by which we get to a more just and equitable society. Um, I just think she's wrong. And I think she kind of like the clowns herself in the process. All right. So again, I wasn't really planning on doing one of these this morning. We thought we were going to do the drive time stuff. And I'm trying to remember if there is, um, stuff that I'm supposed to talk about. We're still going to try and figure out that, um, end of, um, sign off thing. We're working on it. Um, um, and, uh, what else? Oh, yeah, so I I think I said on Glop that I was going to be on special report and um and then I I canceled it because I had not realized when I had said yes that it was Yom Kippur. Um also for those of you who care about such things which I know are few in number, I um I was on NPR yesterday but I recorded it the day before because I didn't want to do it on Yom Kippur. And I'm not trying to purport I'm not trying to claim that I am like crazy super observant Jew. I am not. But um, I am not a big fan of being observed in my non-observantness. I think there's a certain level of just propriety. Um, and being on TV or doing radio interviews or, or tweeting, which I didn't do and don't do on Yom Kippur, I just think it's a bad look. Oh, <laughs> that's right. So I don't know if you saw, but like uh, Jen Rubin um, has this fantastic letter to Politico where... Um, Politico did this piece about how, you know, some people at the Washington Post are embarrassed by Rubin. Um, the White House loves Jen Rubin because she is the most reliable and unrestrained and um and um unapologetic hackish 
supporter of whatever the administration does. And she brings the same zeal to supporting Biden that she brought to attacking Trump, that she brought to supporting Romney. Um, she's basically, a, you know, she's like a trial lawyer. Like she decides who her client is and then she'll do or say anything to support them. I, I, look, I mean, I know I met her once or twice. I was on a junket to Israel once with her. Um, that was the thing that ended where I had to leave early because of my brother. Um, um, but I think of the people who, the, of the anti-Trump conservatives um, who have handled things poorly um, over the last five years, she's got to be at the top of the list. I mean, I'm trying to, th I mean, just objectively, uh, I mean, there are, there are lots of people, I think, there are lots of anti-Trump or never Trump or if you want to call them, people who um, uh, I think have become sort of mirror images of pro-Trumpism and in, in that they just live and breathe. Um, everything about like, everything has to be seen through the prism of stopping Trumpism or being about Trumpism or um, my enemy's enemy is my friend and popular front thinking and all these kinds of things. And I share some of their critiques of the GOP. I think GOP is really losing its soul in ways that truly depress me. I mean, the, just this morning or late last night, we saw news that um, Anthony Gonzalez is not going to run again for Congress because, um, I mean, he says spend more time with his family, yada, yada, yada. But it's because he's one of the, the Republicans who voted for impeachment. And um, you can think that impeachment was wrong. You can think that vote was wrong. But if you're out there gloating, like a lot of the MAGA types are, a lot of the CPAC types are, um, you're out there gloating that this guy felt that he couldn't run for re-election from Ohio. You know, this, this football star who ended up getting a Stanford MBA after he got injured, who's like a decent, serious guy, um, who was basically hounded out of the GOP for voting his conscience on, on, on the second impeachment. If you think that the party is better off with fewer of him and more Matt Gates's and Madison Cawthorns, um, uh, then you're just either deluded. I mean, I, I don't even mean like, I'm not talking about like shame on you, moral stuff. Although I believe a lot of that. I just mean like, like practical politics. Madison Cawthorn is an idiot. I mean, he's just a, 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 I mean, a serious idiot. He is, you know, like dumb really dumb and he's proud of his dumbness um i just saw a clip you know he's on newsmax the other day you know that 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 sense you got i sometimes got it with trump but like you know that sense you get sometimes where it's kind of cute where some toddler is you know explaining how you know uh he is a genius about something or how like maybe they're running around with a sword and they're talking about how they're going to Con, you know, conquer all of Asia minor. And it's just kind of adorable because they're a toddler. Um, I sometimes when I'm charitable feel that way about people like Madison Cawthorn, when I hear them say things that they think are smart, that, that they hear in their heads, wow, I am nailing this. And then they say just profoundly stupid things. So case in point is, uh, Madison Cawthorn was on Newsmax, of course, the other day saying how um, you can't, airlines can't have vaccine mandates because we have a, um, 
a rock solid, and I'm quoting from memory, uh, we have an absolute right uh, for um, constitutional right to travel un- with, with no restrictions within the United States. And, you know, this is just, I mean, like, like, has the guy been on a plane? Has he gone through security? You know, has he seen, you know, does he know what TSA is? Does he know what a private business is? You know, does he know that like you need a ticket and, or does he know that businesses can refuse to provide services for all sorts of reasons? I mean, it's just dumb. It's just like super dumb. And, um, and he's like a leading light of the, he's the kind of congressman that these people want. I mean, forget Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's like not just dumb, but evil. I don't think Cawthorn's evil. I think, you know, and there's a, not to get all spinal tappy, but there's a fine line between dumb and evil. Um, um, if you're dumb, uh, at the very least, it's going to be harder for you to notice whether something is evil. Um, but, uh, the idea that like the GOP is better off with more of these people and fewer Liz Cheney's and fewer Gonzalez's or Myers or any of these guys, um, is just profoundly depressing to me. Uh, you know, if, 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 if you think the GOP is a better party with Paul Gosar in it, um, but a worse party with, with Liz Cheney, then, you know, your idea of what the party is for is just, let's put it this way. It's just very, very, very different than mine. How did I get that on this? Oh, right. Uh, Jen Rubin. So Jen Rubin says, um, uh, writes this letter to Politico saying, you know, playing all the cards that it's misogynistic to attack a woman that, you know, how dare they these are low standards. This is clickbait. I don't believe any of it's true. Fake news, blah, 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 blah. And, um, uh, and then she says, uh, and by the way, how unbelievably shabby of you to do this on Yom Kippur. And, um, the thing is she wrote the letter on Yom Kippur. And as I, I think it was Nathan Wurzel on Twitter was pointing this out. It's like, look to each their own when it comes to things like Yom Kippur. Like you can, like I, I certainly wasn't a great uh, super observant Jew on Yom Kippur, but there were just certain appearances that I wanted to maintain. Um, but I'm not attacking other people for not doing their stuff on Yom Kippur, except in this case, because, you know, if you take Yom Kippur seriously, you're supposed to like, not be doing email, not be doing work, not be doing um, anything other than going to services or praying and atoning. And, and, and it's a somber day. You don't eat. Um, and she's doing a shame on you, presumably to Gentiles, um, for writing something like that on Yom Kippur, on Yom Kippur. And then trying to like, you know, she's trying to hide behind the 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 sanctity of Yom Kippur by writing an angry business thing on Yom Kippur, which I just think is just it's a pod de deux of asininity. And um I I'm not sure I would do this because I generally think that if someone tells me something off the record, even if I haven't agreed to it, that I'm generally going to honor it. But I get where Politico is coming from. You know, Jen Rubin just declares this this email is off the record at the front of it as if Sort of like um, Michael J. Michael Scott in um, the Office finally just says, "I declare bankruptcy." 
Um, that's not actually how it works with real on the record stuff with journalists is that you're, what you're actually supposed to do is agree to the terms of the offer, whether it's off the record, deep background, you know, whatever how, terms of use. Um, often what I'll say to reporters is, Hey, look, I just, let me, let me stream of consciousness and we'll do this off a record. But then if there's anything that you want in here, um, you know, uh, just ask me and you can probably use it, but you know, that kind of thing. And people agree and the reporter agrees to it and then it's okay. But like, she has no reason to believe that like Politico will honor this off the record thing just because she says she declares off the record and they didn't. And so they published the whole email and, um, Anyway, I just thought it was sort of a, a glorious beclowning thing. Um, and, uh, but I know I said I was about to end, so I guess I'm going to end. Uh, now I'm just procrastinating because once I stop, I have to figure out um, what the hell I'm going to write the G file about. Um, and, oh, one last point about that, that, that Met Gala thing, which was sort of the point I was trying to get to. All of those slogans that everyone's wearing, right? Those slogans are, they're kind of like, you know, like you look at those 18th and 19th century reenactments of aristocratic balls and you'll see these old dukes and barons with their medals from some forgotten campaign that they may or may not have even fought in or some hereditary military title that they have. So they have the insignia on them. That's kind of how I view a lot of those slogans is that the, it's, it, you know, instead of proclaiming I'm the ninth Earl of whatever and the second, you know, Duke of the, the Black Friars Regiment and the, 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 the Scottish Hussars or whatever, you know, I'm, I am a, you know, a princess of Wokistan on this issue or that issue and I am willing to wear these things on my clothes, literally wear my politics on my sleeve um, to proclaim where I am from and who I stand for and what faction of the elite, you know, the super abundant overstuffed elite I represent. And, you know, I, I, I literally, I look at people doing that kind of stuff. Um, it's baubles, right? I mean, these are like, instead of wearing jewels, they're wearing slogans because at the end of the day, we live in a culture right now that, that values slogans, um, as if they were jewels, right? We think words have some special power and that if you align with the right side, invoking the right word magic, that you're special too. And it's so much incantation and, and, and nonsense. And, um, um, and I just forgot to make that point. And that was sort of the point that I originally wanted to make. All right. So um, I'm going to go. I, I hear some really troubling things about my cousin's friend's testicles. And um, I got to go deal with that. Um, and um, and we're going to do a drive time thing soon. Um, and there are other big changes coming. And if you are not a, if you are not a paid member of the dispatch uh, community, um, but you are a subscriber to the Friday G file. I do believe that you'll be getting a note from me in the nearest future asking you to become a member. Um, look, I get it. Everybody's asking everybody to subscribe to everything. Paywalls are going up all over the place. They're a pain in the ass. Um, 
and um and money's tight for a lot of people and I, I get that totally get it um but if um if it's not tight for you or if it's sufficiently loose for you that this is not a huge ask um if you could support us by becoming a subscriber um i think it's a win for you i think the stuff that we have on offer is really worth reading and looking at and and um and processing and um in other words that I use to fill up the time until I can think of my next thought. Oh, but I also think that this, you know, we're, we're not a charity. We're, this isn't the Patreon account. We're not, we're not asking for, you know, support above and beyond. We're not having, putting out a tip jar. Um, but you know, we do believe that we have a mission and we think there are a lot of people out there who kind of believe in the mission and they want to be, you know, they want to want to support what we're trying to do and prove that what we're trying to do can be a success. And if you're one of those people and you got a few bucks, um, it would be great if you could become, um, a subscriber, you can quit at any time. You know, it's not, oh, it, it is, it is not, you know, handcuffing yourself to anything for all eternity. Um, but give it a whirl. And, and for those who already have deeply deeply appreciative and and grateful and uh thanks for listening and i'll see you next time monopsony oh hi